Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall, and you're listening to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. With me today, as always, is David Gushy. How are you doing, David? I'm good today, uh, Jeremy. Uh, how are you, my friend? Hanging in there. We are recording from across the southeast. That's all, we could pull it like we're syndicated or something. But uh, you're up in your office in Atlanta, and I am at my current home in Florida. The wonders yes, of technology. This, this gives us blanket coverage of the deep southeast. Which, as well as a lot of other a lot of other places where people are kind enough to pay attention to what we have to say. So thanks everybody. <laughs> the uh, the podcast has done really well. So thank you, dear listener. The um, even through our hiatus, our numbers continued to track really well. The places people are listening from is really diverse. Some of the uh, feedback we've gotten has been substantial and helpful and mostly encouraging. So hey. Every now and then I get a bad review from someone who doesn't understand what their show is. And it, I, I always chuckle at it because they're critiquing a format that we're not using. It happens, man. Yep. But that is what it is. That's the internet. So from the deep south uh, is a good place to talk about one of the concepts in your new book. So this season we're working through David's new book. It just as we're recording this on the fourth, it just came out. Yes, the official release day was yesterday. Very exciting. And it's it's moving. It's selling really well. The publisher's pleased. And we're really excited. Absolutely. and um, But this is the only place where we're talking through every chapter. Exclusive content for you, Kingdom Ethics podcast listeners. That's right. And our hope, my hope, when I'm thinking about these things during the week, when we're scheming what we're going to do, my hope is that this is a companion to the book. That it's it's in some ways a tease, like we're going to talk about some of the concepts and not necessarily the content. We're not reading you the book. We're not walking point by point through it. Uh, but hopefully this would both attract you towards the book if you would want more of this. But also if you're reading it, this is sort of a way to go another step deep. It's like a director's commentary on a movie. Yeah, yeah, it is like that. Yeah. Because we've got the product, and now we're talking about the experience of making the product, of experiencing the product, and how the product's been received. Directors, the director's notes. So when in the future, when uh, when this comes out, uh, when the book comes out, it ought to include a link to the director's comments or you know, whatever. Yeah, right? exactly. These are the Federalist Papers to the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to the Constitution. So when they're restructuring the world around this new book, they can come here and know what did he actually mean by authoritarian reactionary Christianity, which is what we're talking about today. So we've hit chapter, this is chapter four in the book? Right, chapter three. Chapter three in the book is on the concept introducing the idea of authoritarian reactionary Christianity, which is sort of part of your big thesis for the whole text, right? It is the organizing diagnostic, uh, you might say. I think the book, one way to think about this book is it's organized problem, solution, or illness and treatment, right? The illness is authoritarian reactionary Christianity. And so that's where we are today. Is that, I am unfamiliar with the phrase before this book. Is it yours? It's mine. Yeah. Term um, coined. We should 
we should copyright it or TM it or something, right? Um, no, I, I want I actually want it uh, out there. Uh, I'm entering a new term. Authoritarianism is not a new term. Reactionary is not a new term. But putting them together, authoritarian, reactionary, Christian politics, um, or ARC. ARC. The Association of Related Churches might not like that, but <laughs> based out of Birmingham, um, Alabama. Um, so authoritarian, reactionary Christianity is my label to name the phenomenon that we're seeing and to describe it as a problem. Okay. Can you walk us through the components of this term, why they're there, why you chose them specifically and how they work together? Sure. Um, reactionary is a term that was invented in the late 18th century after the French revolution to describe, um, a tendency to negatively describe a tendency to to have a um in politics when there is a fierce counter reaction uh to a development so at the time the term was introduced the idea was reactionaries were those who were reacting fiercely negatively against the french revolution so a monarch uh, who's bolstering the the structure that keeps them in power in fear of the people was a reactionary uh, yeah, somebody who yeah who wanted just to go back to the way things were before, or who were mainly opposed to the change, and and settled into a posture of reaction. Um, so, in the I opened that chapter by quoting um, a political scientist named Albert Hirschman, who says, "Is it not true that each and every one of modern society's three progressive thrusts has been followed by ideological?" counter thrusts of extraordinary force so a reaction reactionary is somebody who's doing an ideological counter thrust to a to development in culture or politics that they don't like okay um my claim is that many many christians have settled into a reactionary posture related to the modern world and if you're listening in the deep south you probably know exactly what i'm saying just right there if it has happened since the 1960s they're against it. Hmm. And so think of everything that has happened since the 1960s. Pick out a few, Jeremy. Uh, birth control. Okay. Uh, divorce rising. Mm-hmm. Uh, greater socialization of the public school system. Okay. Uh, abortion rights. Right? Yeah, it's, it's every piece of the movement. Uh, the normalization of interracial marriage. The feminist movement. Civil rights in general. Uh, gay rights. Dangerous stuff. Uh, the prayer in schools decisions of 1962. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, mass immigration from non-European countries. So is okay. there, would you, is there a line? Is there a place where the church in the United States suddenly realized it was losing and switched into a reactionary posture? Um... I think through the 50s, um, church and culture felt aligned. Is that... For example. Do, before you go, do you think that's yeah. a cultural reaction, that, that circling of the wagons? Is this a Cold War phenomenon? It like was this, a Cold War phenomenon. Communism yeah. is coming to get us and our church, so we must prepare the church for war? 
Yeah, so um, you had government and culture, the dominant government and, you know, and culture. So that's when you get in God we trust on the coins and, you know, the Pledge of Allegiance in school and um, the Christian flag and the American flag all up there together, you know. But the 60s saw the fracturing of this um, cultural consensus, which, of course, was a white cultural consensus because non-white people were not empowered to have much of an opinion in the matter, right? Um, you might say that the fracturing begins with the Brown versus Board of Education decision in 1954, integrating the schools. Um, in 1962, you get the Supreme Court decision banning school-sponsored Christian prayers or any, any prayers, any confessional prayers, right? Um, and during this period, you have the Civil Rights Movement. You have the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65. I think I have those those dates right. You have an immigration law that opens immigration uh, in 1965. You have the pill in 1962, 63. Um, and then there were Supreme Court decisions that made it available first to married couples and then to anybody. Um, interracial marriage was legalized. Well, in other words, states were not allowed to ban it with a Supreme Court decision in 1967. Uh, the divorce rate doubled between 64 and 75. Um, the feminist movement, you know, uh, 60s, sexual revolution, 60s, Playboy and all that. Um, uh, and you have the anti-Vietnam War movement and challenges to the virtue of the American government and the American military. Um, and I probably haven't named all of them. So they and they all just kind of hit at once. All of it in like a ten-year period. Yeah. Do you think it just overwhelmed the church's ability to process, or I think it did. And and different historians emphasize different ones of these. The Christian right argument was it was attacks on traditional family, moral, and Christian values that got everybody riled up. Randall Balmer, a post-evangelical historian, said the real issue was race. Hmm. So all of it. That race was the central hmm. issue, and then other things were secondary, and then for political purposes, other things were packaged as if they were primary. Right. you got to wrap your racism or your sexism or your patriarchy in something else. Yeah. You can get people so to agree on. you got to put it in the, the Freedom of Marriage Act. That you can't get right. married. So some constructive thing. So so reactionary means in light of all of these changes, we say no. We want to take things back to the way they were before. We're against it. Um we like we want to make America great again, to coin a phrase. Um and uh that means take it back to pick your date, 1920, 1930. 1830, 1950, um, the before time. Mm -hmm. There's a movement on what used to be Twitter of a hashtag that I'd see pop up every now and then. That and I, I don't remember the exact acronym, but it was, um, whatever the next thing is, I'm against it. That's reactionary. Yes. There's a line in the book um, where... Um, I describe this, uh, I quote, uh, 
Hirschman, again, the political scientist. To the extent that reactionaries are attempting to block changes that are embraced by the overwhelming majority as tremendous steps forward for human progress, they will be viewed quite negatively by most of those around them. The reactionaries, in turn, will sometimes develop mm. an embattled and defiant streak as they continue to fight against what is understood to be an intellectual climate in which a positive value attaches to whatever lofty objective is placed on the social agenda by self-proclaimed progressives. In other words, reactionaries are not just um, opposed to whatever the next new thing is. They also are aware of themselves as an embattled minority. Right. And we'll talk about this a little more in future episodes, but there's, I've heard it described as a fetish. I love that. That American Christianity and specifically evangelical American Christianity has a persecution fetish. Absolutely. Yes. Um, so, um, the so totemized object that it proves that they're right, which there's a little bit yes. of reformed theology sneaking in there yeah. that. They know they're right if everyone hates them for it. Right. And it may be partly because of obnoxiousness or a general lack of humanity or whatever, but the, it's going to be read or seen. It's that perception lens, Jeremy, that we were talking about in class, right? right? They're going to see it, see it. They're going to perceive it as confirmation of the rightness of their view. Yeah, okay. And it, do, do you think that comes from the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are you when you're uh, persecuted? Oh, I think that is one place you can get it. And yeah. you can take whatever it is that you're upset about, um, traditional family values in the West, and wrap that in the truth of Jesus. So you say, I'm defending Jesus when I defend the importance of the nuclear family, or pick whatever or, you think Or uh, a majority white dominant culture. Mm -hmm, the way God intended it. The way God, yeah, right? Okay. Okay, so that's the reactionary side, and it's really worth pondering Um what happens in any country when a significant minority of the population settles into a defiant no to everything that has been developing? Okay. The authoritarian side is like this. I say two basic things here. There is an authoritarianism in much of religious tradition in the world, including Christianity. By authoritarianism, I mean a strong um right and wrong good and bad we know right and wrong we know what is good and what is bad and we the authorities in this religious tradition define those terms and reserve the right to control the ongoing definition of those concepts okay so when when i think about authoritarianism in church not necessarily Christianity, but the the experience of church, my mind went to systems that have a central top figure, Catholicism. So you got the Pope, you got the ecumenical patriarch, um, there's archbishops, but a lot of these authoritarian sects in American Christianity are from the Congregationalists that don't have they, they don't have an authoritarian it's not supposed to happen that way. In fact, later in the book, I argued that congregationalism is a resource against authoritarianism if it's understood right. But yes, you're right. The all-powerful pastor. I'm thinking that this experience is a type of idolatry, especially if you don't have if you don't have a pope, if you don't have a patriarch, if you don't have 
someone that you can literally put on the top, you have to take your doctrine and put it up there. You have to have something other than God that you can appeal to at the top. Maybe, but yes, but you also, there's always somebody who's the authoritative interpreter of that doctrine. Um, it doesn't just sit there by itself. There's somebody in charge of managing it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So authoritarianism in religion is centralization of authority to define doctrine and morals. And that could be in a family too, like say the this traditional patriarchal family where the dad says, my word is law. And everybody else knuckles under wife and children, right? So, so that's authoritarianism. And I say in the book that religious authoritarianism religious and moral authoritarianism is a very strong dimension of christian history probably majorities of the church around the world today could be described as authoritarian systems but the paradox is that in the west especially and wherever democracy spread most christians gradually accommodated to democracy as a political system and democracy is is quite intentionally not an authoritarian system. It spreads power. It doesn't centralize power. Um, so somehow Christians had to come to terms with decentralized, non-authoritarian politics. Um, they had to, and and we'll talk later about how they did that. But my argument right now is that the reactionaries are so freaked out by the social changes they don't like. And so unhappy with the democratic process in terms of its yielding results that they don't like and not yielding results that they want and have been working for, that some of these traditionalist Christians are turning away from democracy itself because they don't like what it is what it is yielding. So this is political authoritarianism. They are drifting from democracy because they they don't like everything they don't like and they don't like it so much. And they're getting tired of waiting for democracy to yield the counter-revolution that they're looking for. So democracy is fine as long as they're in the majority. Right. As long as they win. This is the danger with it, with democracy. The culture of democracy, and we talked about this last time, I think, the culture of democracy requires being willing to, to live with losing sometimes. Because mm-hmm. you win some and you lose some. Now, probably what the reactionaries would say is all we do is lose. And we're tired of it. We've been losing since 1962. And we've been putting our trust in politicians who have been promising us stuff and not delivering. Um, and so maybe we're going to no longer accept the results of elections because we're tired of or And maybe we're just going to now tell stories. There's no way we could have lost that election fair and square. Therefore, it must have been rigged. Or there's no way we're going to accept democrats in charge of the government because they're a spawn of satan and and so we're going to change the rules or the enforcement of the rules wherever we can so that our side like always wins so when christians driven by negative reaction to cultural changes that they don't like embrace political authoritarianism and drift from democracy you have what i call authoritarian reactionary christian politics and I think that argument is ironclad. I think descriptively, it describes where we are. And I'll say in the book, not just in our country, but in a bunch of countries. Mm-hmm. And that's that's somewhere we will go as the season continues, is we'll look at a few of those countries. 
at those movements and how they've played out. Um, from yeah. uh, starting all the way back, we mentioned the French Revolution a minute ago, starting in France and getting all the way to our moment here that we are sitting in. Um, we are at about 22 minutes. Okay. Um, let me ask you a question. Let's let's let me ask you a question from your life experience. Okay. Okay. How does this description resonate with your life experience? Your your deep south roots, friends and family, and classmates in college, and so on. Does this ring true to you? It rings true for this moment more than it does for my experience of the church over time. Now, it's always been there. Um, we should be winning. We ought to be winning. Our side is unified, and we have, we have our things that matter and the things we know we're right about, um, and those should be universal, but they're not, and that's bad or wrong. But it wasn't as... It wasn't as obvious. I never felt like my peers would be okay with fascism. What about now? I don't think they know what the word fascism means and that they are, in fact, supporting a lot of fascist ideas. By the way, I talk about fascism in the book, and I talk about it, I think it's in the previous chapter, and when we're talking about what is the best label for what we're dealing with, I look at fascism, populism, and nationalism. Mm-hmm. Christian nationalism is the popular term right now, and I suggest that this phrase, authoritarian reactionary Christianity, is more descriptive, um, and that it applies to more countries. But I'm not. I think there's truth in all of the all of that language. Uh, I would urge readers to check out the discussion of fascism because there are some neo-fascist elements in some of the some of the people that we're running into on the very far right. Um, see if I can <laughs> find. Okay, I don't want to waste time here, so pause here for just a second. Okay. Um, and you can you could do a timeline from the from 1962 today. You could probably plot a really interesting timeline of these shifts along the spectrum inside the church, because you move yeah. from the church being America, those things being congruent. Yeah, and I think about the moral majority is a reactionary movement that starts to bring in that nationalism rather than patriotism, mm-hmm. at least in the way that it affects the world that I've lived in. Yeah. A lot of God and country hyper nationalism. Here's the, here's one way I'm talking about it. Um, when the church in the sixties and early seventies began realizing that the culture was shifting, um, some more progressive Christians actually thought some of these changes were good. I do. I think some of the changes are good. Um, and so they went with the changes and they became progressive Christians, right? Um, but others were opposed. I think the first Christian strategy was the oldest one, evangelism and missions. We will win our neighbors to Christ, train them up in scripture, and make them good followers of Jesus, which by definition meant against all those liberal changes. And they'll vote like right? us. Right. So that was, you'd call it an evangelism, discipleship, and mission strategy. Um, 
And it may not have anything to do with politics. There was, I mean, people may not have even thought about it in political terms. That's just what you did, right? You evangelized people, converted them, and trained them up, right? I want to suggest that there was a loss of confidence in the evangelism strategy that gradually developed through the 70s. Um, and the political strategy of the Christian right, of people like Falwell and Pat Robertson and stuff, was we're going to take America back by making a marriage with the Republican Party. And we're going to um, make a deal. We'll give you our support on your on your uh, you know economic libertarianism and on your low taxes, low regulation agenda, pro-business agenda, um, and on your Cold War agenda, which always worked for them anyway. Um, if you give us anti-abortion and traditional values. That was the deal with Reagan, and Reagan got elected twice on that platform. Was there a meeting um, where... People sat down in a smoke-filled room and did this? Essentially, yes. Like, in my mind, this is a... This is, um... Dr. Dr. Lovegood-looking stuff. Underground circle um, room bunkers. There were... There are books that describe the meetings that happened in the late 70s in which uh, Republican political operatives who also had connections to the Christian right got these two sides together. This legitimately happened, okay? And it worked. It also helped to swing the South solidly to the Republican Party. Um, part of the hidden agenda was to go slow on all things civil rights, right? That was part of it. Um, but but it was also anti-abortion, overturn Roe versus Wade, traditional family values, anti-homosexuality, usually anti-feminist. Um, and, and so the idea was if we can make this marriage, we can win election after election, we can get our goals met. My sense is that by 2010, uh, especially the election of Barack Obama uh, and then the re-election of Barack Obama, it signaled to a lot of traditionalist white Christians the failure of that strategy. Um, Abortion had not been overturned. Uh, Acceptance of gay rights had been spreading. And then you got the gay marriage decision of 2015 by the Supreme Court. You have... Barack Obama getting elected twice. Um, and and in general, the continued settling in of a, of a liberalization of American culture and a decline of Christian influence, right? And a decline of Christian membership and participation. So I think Trump comes along and he's like, we're going we're gonna to try, uh, I'm with you guys. We're not going to uh, pussyfoot around here. I'm going to give you what you want and we're going to do it uh, tough and whatever is needed, that's what we're going to do. We're going to win. So we're going to win. Hey, I'm losers, gonna... come win. Yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, win with me. I know what to do. So part of his appeal was, was, eh, you know, uh, we'll do whatever is necessary to win. And then after he lost the election in 2020, uh, various frontiers were breached related to undercutting the results of an election. And finally, there's January 6th, in which some Christians are in the Capitol building waving their Christian flags. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the radicalization is is more recent. I think it signals a despair. The political process did not yield what we wanted. And so we might have to go beyond dem- democratic politics. So that is where that chapter ends, basically. Reactionary Christian folks despairing of the slow or unhappy result of democratic politics Turns turn in an authoritarian, anti-democratic direction. And that is the danger that the book is uh, is attempting to address. 
in 2000, so I, my question, let's, I'm going to set it up like Seinfeld. What, what's the deal with Obama? Um, in 2008, I was in high school. It was going to be the first election I could vote in. Um, and when he was inaugurated, I remember that my senior class in high school went to the, our school library and watched it on a TV mounted in the corner on the ceiling. And our teacher at this Christian high school explained that he was the Antichrist in these wow. facts, that this was the inauguration of the end times. And there was weeping and rejoicing and preparation for our persecution. Would we get raptured or beheaded? We weren't sure. Our different churches taught different timelines for the tribulation and such. Um, but, but, all these things passed, right? I've been hearing people talk about Obama again as the Antichrist. Currently. like, really? Yep, he's coming back. I've heard that from five different, kind of very fringe, like qanon sources, both actual people and... Like, um, the Tonight Show does man-on-the-street interviews at QAnon rallies and goes and finds the craziest people at Trump rallies and tricks them into saying crazy things, but they, a lot of people volunteered that Gematria, Gematria approves that Obama's the Antichrist, that his name in Hebrew matches, which when people misuse biblical languages, I get really mad, but that, uh, Barack Obama is... The Hebrew version of the Greek phrase that Jesus uses in Aramaic to say, I saw Satan fall like lightning, that phrase in this Aramaic to Hebrew back into Greek and then to Hebrew again, sounds like Barak U-Bama. It doesn't. But that's there. Um, He's a secret homosexual. He's secretly a Muslim. These old things are still there. Why, Why is he such a lightning rod? Um, in actuality, he was a church-going Christian of classic moderate democratic politics. Right, he's a mainline Protestant. <laughs> a mainline Protestant of moderate democratic politics who was always very careful on issues of race because of obvious reasons, right? Um, I think that uh, a person of uh, African-American descent being elected president absolutely freaked out a significant chunk of white Christians, white Americans. Um, You know, his exotic, non-traditional name and background um, and the the symbolism of loss of I think loss of white dominance in the most dominant position in the country, President of the United States, a black man in the White House. Um, A black man in the White House that had been built by enslaved people and had always been occupied by white men. Uh, It destabilized and unleashed a lot of craziness on the right wing of American white folk. And of course, Christianity got wired into that completely illegitimately. Um, And I think Donald Trump was a direct reaction to Barack Obama. We're going to pick the Mm anti-Obama. And and Trump was the leading, one of the leading birthers and um, 
the the least veiled in his racial dog whistling. He was the anti-Obama. They had 17 other choices. They picked him. Even though he was a supposed mainline Protestant, right? He came from the right. Presbyterian world. Uh, very loosely. Mm-hmm. So, um, so Obama, by the way, that kind of story, I mean, think of that happening in Christian schools and homeschools all over the country. Yeah. Um, and you notice that it got tied into the conspiracy theory that was apocalyptic end time stuff. Uh, there are some good articles and books right now that are saying that one thing that got Christians set up for conspiracy thinking in QAnon was the late great planet Earth from Hal Lindsey and left yes. behind from Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. There are all these secret forces that are preparing for Armageddon. Armageddon and the persecution of Christians as part of it. and The structures getting put in place. I was taught about trains full of guillotines waiting to be rolled out. Plastic coffins that FEMA is keeping in secret bases. Um, that's pretty scary background, Jeremy. It's amazing you are as normal as you are. <laughs> as I am. <laughs> that was for you, Jeremy. That as normal as as normal as possible. So, um, yeah. So let's end it there. But this reactionary piece, I want to say the reactionary piece has elements that can be analyzed, right? Like. There have been a lot of social changes since the 60s. There has been a lot of shifts of power. A woman speaker of the house started lying to the president. A woman vice president. Uh, that woman vice president happens to be both African-American and of um, Indian background, right? Um, a An African-American president. Um, a lot of sharing and diffusion of power, a lot of loss of power for traditional white, male, straight Christians. Um, so there's that. But then there's the conspiracy theory hysteria around the fringes of that. Mm-hmm. And that is reactionary on steroids. And when people lose touch with reality, then you, it's even harder to have a rational conversation about, can we respond in a different way to the social changes that are that are frightening you? Thank you, David. And thank you, listener, for joining us today on the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. As always, you can find us on all the big players, and you can find David and myself on all the social media platforms where you would expect to find us. And uh, we're not hidden. We use our names. Uh, Even our websites are davidpgushy.com and revjeremyhall.com. So uh, we'd love for you to check out some of our other work. There's stuff up on Amazon. There's stuff on YouTube. I've got a bunch of things on TikTok of all places. I wrote a book. Do you know I wrote a book? And it's based on a TikTok series. So I don't know if that legitimates it or delegitimizes it, but we'll we'll see. So find us online. We look forward to hearing from you and uh, join us next time as we continue this conversation on Kingdom Ethics. Thank you.